two notes before we get into the podcast. We recorded this at noon on Saturday because we wanted to get it to you as fast as we could. But things are changing rapidly. We promise we will be back in your feed after tomorrow's debate. Also, we have to say it, this podcast is not suitable for young listeners. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, and yeah... We can't believe we're here to talk about this either. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. All of us are here at NPR HQ, except for Ron, and he is piped in from home. Um, And we're here one day ahead of the second presidential debate. Last night, the Washington Post released this tape of Donald Trump, and we are going to play some clips. We are going to bleep certain words. So if you are listening with your kids, you may want to just skip ahead a few minutes from here. Here's the backstory. Donald Trump was recorded in 2005 while arriving on a tour bus to the set of a soap opera where he was filming a guest appearance. He was on an entertainment show called Access Hollywood, which was filming a story about his guest appearance. And Trump had a mic on. Um, This is what you call a hot mic. Um, The bus was pulling up. They were meeting a woman from the show. Um, And here are a couple of clips from that. Um, Billy Bush is the host. And then there's Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump. I moved on her, actually. You know, she was down in Palm Beach. I moved on her and I failed. I'll admit it. I did try and she was married. (laughs) Huge news, Sarah. No, Nancy. No, this was. And so this is his this is Billy Bush's co-host that he's talking about. Nancy O'Dell. And Billy just sits there and lets that happen. And I moved on her very heavily. In fact, I took her out furniture shopping. She wanted to get some furniture. I said, I'll show you where they have some nice furniture. <laughs> I took her out furniture. I moved in her like a <laughs> but I couldn't get there. And she was married. And all of a sudden, I see her. She's now got the big phony <laughs> and everything. She's totally changed her look. She's your girl's hottest <laughs> So this is they're pulling up and seeing the woman that's greeting Trump. In the purple. Whoa. Whoa. Yes. Whoa. <laughs> yes, the Donald Escort. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> oh, my man. So that, it turns out, is not actually the worst of it. It gets worse, folks. I gotta use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the. <laughs> I can do anything. Can we just have a moment of silence for our democracy? What's going on? Here's here? what really bothered me. And then I'm going to step out of the way and let, and let the women talk about this. Like, everyone who was like, oh, this is just locker room banter, or everyone who was more offended by the fact that he said the P word. That was the initial Trump yes, campaign what reaction. The, what, people failed, what some people have failed to realize is that what he is describing is sexual assault. Yeah. It's not just locker room banter. It's not just boys being boys. It is illegal. It is degrading someone else's body. It is sexual assault. Grabbing anyone. By the you know what the girl part they don't want it, no, like I I I feel like that was kind of lost in the first few hours after this story broke, and that disheartened me. Like, do we not know as a country what sexual assault really means? I think that's right. And uh, one millennial blogger I follow wrote, you know, we have a long history in America of clutching our pearls over dirty words, while letting the rape 
culture flourish beneath the radar. And what I think we knew after this video, after this audio came out, I think the moment when you just felt the tipping point that this was going to be a changing moment is when RNC chairman Reince Priebus was one of the first people to put out a statement. And he put out um, a basically one sentence statement that just said, no woman should ever be described in these terms or talked about in this manner, period, ever, period. What was notable about that is I think, you know, Donald Trump in the course of this campaign has said myriad things that have offended certain groups of people or yeah. or just offensive things in general. And the party itself doesn't really weigh in on all of them. Yes, because no. he says a lot of stuff. You know, he says a lot of stuff. And I think that they have. And then as soon as that statement came out, there was an avalanche of commentary. Um, every single member of Republican leadership in Congress has put out a statement, either distancing, disavowing, or saying Trump should apologize, although we should make clear that none of those leaders have called on him to step down or resign, and they have not withdrawn their endorsements of now him. Now some formally. folks in Congress have called for him to do so, Some right, members Sue? of Congress have. The th- sp- there may be more as the time of this taping. We have at least three Republican members of the House. Uh, Jason Chaffetz, who's a Republican from Utah. Mike Kaufman, a Republican from Colorado and Barbara Comstock, a Republican from Virginia, who had endorsed Trump, have withdrawn endorsements. Um, Kaufman and Comstock are in very competitive races. Jason Chaffetz is not, but of course he's a chairman and he is one of the Republicans in Congress who has led investigations into uh, Benghazi and Hillary Clinton's private email server. So he was a, a very strong supporter of the Republican nominee, no longer. Yeah, I mean, he is Jason Chaffetz in Congress, one of the chief prosecutors, if you will, of Hillary Clinton over her emails. And we have a clip of Chaffetz last night on Fox 13 in Salt Lake City. That would be um, where he's from. Uh, I'm out. I, I can no longer, in good conscience, uh, endorse this person for president. It is some of the most abhorrent and, of, and offensive comments that you can possibly imagine. And you know, my wife and I, we have a, uh, we have a 15-year-old daughter. And, and if I can't look her in the eye and tell her these things, I can't endorse this person. Can I just soapbox a little more real quick? Yeah. <laughs> that, that, this whole this whole daughter, they, you know, as a, as a father of a daughter or a husband to a wife or this to a that, whether a woman or a man is kin to you or in your family or not, they don't deserve sexual assault. No one deserves better or worse treatment because they're kin to you or not. They deserve decent treatment and to not be assaulted just because they're human. Here's my question in this, though. And I have my own ideas, but I'm curious what you guys think, too, is yeah. like, why is this the thing? Like, why yes. is why this, is this the tipping point? You know, this I has been a you. year of comments that we thought, oh, this will be the thing that yeah. that knocks Donald Trump out of the running. We thought things throughout the primaries and through the race. Why today? Why this? In in my mind, it is, you know, he said the other stuff. Uh, he said lots of things on Howard Stern that were kind of gross and and you could classify as locker room. But as Sam said, This is him describing himself, forcing himself on women. Now, we don't actually know if he did or if he just is describing it to, like, pump himself up talking to Billy Bush. That's not clear. And I think for some, in in my pockets of Twitter yesterday, in black and brown Twitter, there was some discussion about what this really was saying about the way people felt Trump was treating white women. Um, We have seen this candidate, Donald Trump, say that black and brown people live in hell, that all the Muslims should be kept out, that all the Mexicans are rapists. So if you were looking for stuff to be disqualifying, 
It's existed before this video. But there's a political distinction to be made here, and that is that among people of color, Donald Trump's numbers are already, already low. collapsed. Whereas among white people, Donald Trump is clearly ahead or has been up until this point. Not among women, but among all white people overall. And that is the reason why there is some distinction here in terms of the offense just strictly in political terms, not moral terms, but in terms of possibly alienating voters that the Republicans still thought they had. They weren't worried about the losses that they were already suffering. And can one more reason why I think the, the why this, why now is it's important to remember that we're voting right now. Oh, yeah. Over yeah, 400,000 people have already voted in this country. People, if not over a million ballots have been mailed out, both to voters overseas and the military and to in states that have early and absentee voting. So I think that it's happening now when voters are dialed in. They're dialed into this election and we're a day before another debate. Yeah. And Sam, you wanted to say one more thing about the Trump comments. Story. Yeah. So I was really just sad about this whole situation yesterday. It felt depressing and the dialogue that we've reached in this campaign, I found to be disheartening and hearing this stuff on TV it was just saddening. But I wanted to try to find a bright spot in, in, in all of this. And I think that what we've seen online is some needed conversations about sexual assault. A woman on Twitter named Kelly Oxford tweeted yesterday. She said, women, tweet me your first assaults. They aren't just stats. She talked about some of her assaults and urged others to do the same um, with the hashtag and not OK. And when it hit its peak, she was getting tweets of assaults, uh, two stories per second. So people tweeting about publicly what they about what had happened to them. Yeah, yeah. And what I hope is that parents and friends and mentors can hopefully have some candid conversations with the boys and men and girls and women in their lives about what consent is, what it really means, and how we should respect others' bodies. And you see that this is not just something that's happening in a vacuum of political campaign and political reporters, that real people have, have real visceral reactions yeah. and that this is like broken through beyond just typical campaign back and forth. Yeah. yeah. So um, about midnight, many hours, you know, seven hours after this first blew up, um, around midnight, uh, Trump uh, put out a video. He is talking directly to the camera. And, and here's that video. I've never said I'm a perfect person nor pretended to be someone that I'm not. I've said and done things I regret, and the words released today on this more than a decade-old video are one of them. Anyone who knows me knows these words don't reflect who I am. I said it, I was wrong, and I apologize. I've traveled the country talking about change. So he goes on to talk about his travels and running, how running for president has changed him, has humbled him, and he pledges to be a better man tomorrow. And then he says this. Let's be honest. We're living in the real world. This is nothing more than a distraction from the important issues we're facing today. We are losing our jobs. We're less safe than we were eight years ago. And Washington is totally broken. Hillary Clinton and her kind have run our country into the ground. I've said some foolish things, but there's a big difference between the words and actions of other people. Bill Clinton has actually abused women, and Hillary has bullied, attacked, shamed, and intimidated his victims. We will discuss this more in the coming days. See you at the debate on Sunday. 
And while he does say he explicitly says he apologizes, he doesn't in in these comments acknowledge the sexual assault component of this. He doesn't say that that kind of behavior is never okay or and that was really lacking in this. And that is something that I saw a lot of women react to in that he doesn't actually apologize for those acts or say they are wrong and should never occur. And the whole, like, this was 10 years ago. You were 59, Donald Trump. <laughs> Billy Bush was 33. Like They were grown men. They were men. grown men. And also, Melania, he didn't apologize to his wife either. Yeah. And, and but, she was his wife at the time. He yes. has made a fuss about how infidelity was never an issue in any of his marriages, any of his three marriages. Well, he was five months married to Melania at the time that this recording was made. And then this idea that he's going to pivot this around and make it, and it sort of ends on this vaguely threatening note ahead of the town hall yeah. debate tomorrow See night. See at the debate, guys. And there has been this, uh, after the first debate, and when he said, I was going to say terrible things, but I didn't, and sort of suggested that he was going to bring up Bill Clinton's past infidelities. Uh, and now he leaves off of this statement suggesting that maybe tomorrow night at the debate, and it's hugely risky. in this apology, he did the attack. He, he said what the attack would be. The attack would be that Bill Clinton had his indiscretions, infidelities, whatever you want to call it. Ron, the attack line that, that Trump uses in this statement, that, that Hillary Clinton bullied, attacked, shamed, and intimidated Bill's victims, um, fact check on that. Is, that. is that based in reality? There were things that she said that were, I thought at the time, uh, probably pretty much what you would expect a wife who had decided to stand by her husband to say, to say that the people who he had victimized were not entirely victims, that they had been willing participants, what have you. And some of that was said, no doubt, in a certain amount of anger. And people can decide how they feel about that and whether or not they feel that makes her an enabler or whether or not it makes her more or less a human being with a dimension that maybe they hadn't glimpsed in her always and possibly they could be sympathetic to. There will be both reactions. So what do we expect from this debate? I mean, I feel like the earth could be scorched. Well, Donald Trump today was supposed to be in Wisconsin at a campaign appearance with House Speaker Paul Ryan. After this story broke, Paul Ryan disinvited him from that event. We know that Donald Trump is staying in New York, that he is apparently holed up in New York with Reince Priebus and his advisors, and they are now spending the next 48 hours in debate prep, which he did not really do much of before the first debate. So this debate will be a more prepped Donald Trump. We don't know what that looks like yet. Uh, but clearly they if, if if we are to believe his statement that he put out that they are sharpening this line of attack towards Clinton and her husband and trying to move past his own problems and focus on the, his on Bill Clinton. Let's let's also bear in mind this debate format is going to be quite different. Yeah. This is a town hall so described. Now, of course, it's not really a town hall, but what it is is a gathering of people described as undecided chosen by pollsters, and they will get to ask half the questions, and those questions uh, will be passed through the moderators, but they are going to be these people's questions, and so that's a little bit more difficult to prepare for, plus we have two really crackerjack moderators in Anderson Cooper from CNN and our former colleague at NPR, Martha Raddatz, now with ABC. Uh, They have both done excellent work as moderators in the past, and we expect them to do a fine job of dealing with what must be the most challenging set of circumstances any moderators have ever faced. I seriously don't know how you debate prep for the last 24 hours. Yeah. Like, I don't know yeah. how the things that have happened 
I don't know how you prepare to talk about that. We're going to find out. <laughs> yeah. And Ron, we've heard rumblings that some Republicans uh, are looking to get rid of their nominee somehow. There was a little groundswell of, hey, Mike Pence would be a great nominee. That started actually after the vice presidential debate. You can imagine how that caught fire on Friday night. So uh, suddenly there are people talking about, aren't there ways that we could change this? Uh, As it turns out, not so much. But it is a topic of conversation, and we're very glad to be able to address it on this podcast with an expert who's in the exact position to discuss it. Yes. We have uh, Ben Ginsburg on the phone. Uh, Ben is a Republican Party rules expert, and uh, we felt like we just had to call you to ask you about all of this. (laughs) Thank you for coming back. My pleasure. And and you guys might remember uh, Ben Ginsburg was on our episode way back in April when we talked about the idea of what a contested GOP convention might look like. And that didn't happen. No. But we came closer than ever. So now we have a whole new set of questions for Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so in the last 24 hours, we have begun to hear from some Republicans who are saying that Donald Trump should drop out, should get himself off the ticket. If high-ranking members of the GOP really started pushing for this, how would that work? Could it work? Well, it would be really difficult. This is the equivalent of a, of a three-sided bank shot. <laughs> um, first of all, the RNC rules uh, allow for replacement of a candidate on death, or declining the nomination, but there's no provision for replacing a candidate. So it would, at this stage, under the way I think the rules would be interpreted by the RNC, Donald Trump would have to resign. There's no way to stage a coup. Hmm. But in any event, if there were to be a vacancy in the, in the, the candidate for presidency, there are a lot of hurdles to jump. First of all, is the question of how you can actually replace a nominee, what the voting process at the RNC is. And the answer to that is the RNC can reconvene uh, 168 members. Each state gets the uh, same number of votes as that state had delegates to the national convention. (laughs) And you would need to get 1,237 delegates votes for a majority. They would have to come up with a set of rules under which the nominations would take place. Uh, That is, under any circumstances, not a quick or or cohesive process, but it could be done. Uh, So we've talked about on this podcast recently, people are already voting. President Obama voted yesterday in Chicago. How, How would this even... What would it look like for uh, there are ballots printed? Yes, that's part of the um, that's part of the mysteries of this process right now. So there are a couple of things. Each state has its own set of rules on what its ballot looks like and what early voting can look like. So if you were to get a, uh, a new candidate, you would have to go through state by state and see if you could change the names on the ballots. Now, the other major consideration for this is this is a presidential election. So when we go to vote, we're not actually voting for the presidential candidates. Remember, 
There's that thing we all studied in high school government called the Electoral College, (laughs) and what you're actually voting for are the members of the Electoral College who will vote on December 17th for president. So what that means is that each of the states has its own set of rules on what its electors can and cannot do. The majority of states require the electors to vote for the nominee of the party, no matter what's printed on the ballot. But there are other states where the electors are free to vote for whoever they vote they want to. And there are other states that, that do tie their vote to the name that's on the ballot who got the most votes. And I think people will be diving into state statutes to figure out sort of wiggle room in those things, because that's the nature of the beast. It is fair to say that we are in uncharted territory, and uh, I think people don't know all the options yet. So, so Ben, if we're in a swing state here, and we are in a situation where there is some question for whom the elector would eventually be voting, be it Donald Trump or some successor, the voters who are voting for Donald Trump are still choosing the only Republican elector they can choose, and that person will then be empowered to act upon whatever the party wants that person to do. Well, remember, we have had a number of unfaithful electors in the past who cast protest votes. Even if it's violative of state law to not vote for the nominee of the party, what are they going to do if the elector on December 17th votes for somebody else? We've never had to go through the scenario of enforcing those laws. So I have a question for you. Um, As soon as the video surfaced and sparks began to fly, everyone began to kind of look at Mike Pence and say, oh, he could just come in and save the day, become the nominee. But based on what you know... And based on the rules that exist, what is the real chance that Pence ends up being other than just a VP candidate? Well, under the rules, if there is a vacancy in the nomination, it does not automatically go to the vice presidential candidate. As a matter of rules, uh, it can really be anyone. Uh, And part of what the Republican National Committee would have to do before it voted on a replacement was to figure out the, the nomination rules to see who would be eligible. But it's uh, sort of an all-bets-are-off scenario, and there might be a political consensus for Mike Pence, but it is not um, mandated by the rules. So there's no requirement that the replacement candidate be someone who was nominated at the convention, as Donald Trump was, uh, to replace him? Correct. And, of course, Mike Pence wasn't nominated for president at the convention either. So, Ben, we've called you. Um, I'm assuming you're hearing from a lot of people. Are you hearing from people in the Republican Party who are looking for an escape hatch? Um, I think this this is a time when people in the Republican Party are understandably nervous about a, a number of things. And so, yes, there are certainly people who are looking for an escape hatch uh, at the moment. The rules do not provide a ready-made escape hatch, uh, nor do the ballot uh, rules in the different states, nor do the electoral college rules. So that while people are looking for an escape hatch, in a very real sense, this die was cast in Cleveland at the convention that didn't become the brokered convention we talked about. 
So I guess the the in, in conclusion, you're not offering a lot of um, conclusions. Yeah, you're, in conclusion, <laughs> you're um, you're not offering a, a lot of balm for people who are worried about the current situation. So there is a very narrow path um, under which, as a theoretical matter, things could change. But the rules of the Republican Party are not written to provide that ready-made change 30 days out from an election. All right. Well, Ben Ginsburg, um, thank you for uh, setting us straight here. Uh, Our listeners had a lot of questions, and I think you've answered them. (laughs) Well, I hope so. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks. So it's not going to (laughs) happen. No. Well, and also, what's the chance that Trump steps down? Yeah, right? see, that's the that's the necessary. He has piece. to. Yeah, he has to step down. He, as Ben says, there's no provision for a coup. So, Sue, you cover Congress, and you know there are a lot of people running for election and re-election this year, and there there did seem like there we, we were nearing an inflection point as it was whether people were going to run against their nominee. What's happening now? What are you hearing? Well, what's so interesting is up until this point, the down-ballot races had really existed in their own ecosystem, that voters still on their own and both in the ways Democrats were campaigning saw Donald Trump and Republicans on the ballot as two different silos, that they weren't all running under the same umbrella brand. And this was partly because this is the way that Hillary Clinton has run against Trump. She has run against him as not a Republican, as sort of a Um, his own action forcing event and that he had to be alienated and taken out. And part of that was the Clinton strategy to appeal to Republican voters. She didn't want to diminish or demean Republican voters because part of her campaign is saying, you're welcome over here if this guy disgusts you. And down the ballot, we saw that Democrats in Senate races and House races haven't really been running as referendums on Trump. We haven't yeah. seen it in ads. We, we haven't seen that that thematically. Uh, now the question is, does that change this? Does this election become down the ballot more of a referendum on Donald Trump and this issue? So we don't know the answer to that question. We do know that we've already seen Republicans in vulnerable races in the House withdrawing endorsements. And if we start to see a sort of waterfall or avalanche of that, then we're going to know very quickly that Republicans down the ballot are going to start running away from Trump and as a check on President Hillary Clinton. Like They are just going to assume that Hillary Clinton is going to be president of the United States and say, vote for me yes. because I will make it hard for her when she's president. And there's also a question of, does it take races that were taken off the table, Senate races in places like Ohio and Florida and Iowa and Arizona, where the Republican incumbents were favored to win and Democrats were pulling out of the state on the Senate level, do they reassess that? Is there an opportunity now for Democrats to go back into these states if they really start to see the numbers moving away from Republicans? I have a question. Yeah. How does Hillary Clinton play this? So it's 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 tricky, right? I talked to someone in her campaign who does not want to be attributed, but they have really mixed feelings right now because the thing that the things that Trump said are shocking and appalling and clearly this would seem to give her an advantage, but they are not spiking the football. They don't feel good about this. Uh, they feel gross about it. I mean, at some point when your opponent is self-destructing, you don't have to do anything. Yeah. Sometimes it's better just to get out of the way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Avoid the sparks. Yeah. Ron? Especially if if you are Hillary Clinton and you want to let Donald Trump stew in his own juice. And above all, you don't want to give him an opportunity to blow this back on Bill. 
It just doesn't help her to do that. So anything she can do to keep the emphasis on Donald Trump, but to not, if you will, rub his face in it any more than is done naturally by just having him on stage would probably be her best strategy. Yeah, I mean, I have to think that in the debate, the moderator and the crowd are probably going to bring this up before she ever has to. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's the first question, right? <laughs> yeah. So it is worth pointing out that while this was all blowing up, there was potentially big news about Hillary Clinton. WikiLeaks released some excerpts of her paid speeches to Wall Street corporations. Now, uh, the campaign has not verified that these are real, and uh, we have not been able to verify it ourselves, but these certainly look to be documents that emails hacked from her campaign chairman, John Podesta. And the excerpts of her speeches that are in one of those emails show her to be, as the New York Times headline reads, at ease with Wall Street. Um, It's also worth pointing out that yesterday U.S. intelligence officials released a statement saying that the Russian government directed the recent hacking to, quote, interfere with the U.S. elections process. Um, That statement is not related to the release of those documents, but it is related in that those documents were hacked. So, (laughs) so If Donald Trump weren't self-destructing right at this second, it would be a pretty big deal because in those emails and in those speeches, there are some things that the Clinton campaign does not want to talk about. Well, there was this one email that I was looking through um, where I guess some folks in her staff outline all of the things that she said in the Wall Street speeches that could come back to haunt her. Yes. A few of the things include admitting that she's out of touch, saying that when you're making policy that it's good to have a public and a private position. Which um, is actually true. Which is actually whatever. true, but it it, it it could sound but weird But you to don't want to say that. Yes. <laughs> or, and, say, and we should clarify, out of touch economically. Yes. yes. Um, also saying that there is a bias against um, in voters against people who have been successful and then she says at one point in these speeches that her dream is a, quote, hemispheric common market with open trade and open borders. That's yeah. that could be a big deal. And I feel like it's totally overshadowed. And and that was in a speech to a Brazilian bank um, that just to spell it out would seem to be in direct conflict with the position that she took during the campaign that she opposes the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. I mean, these things that are in these speeches are kind of like what. Bernie Sanders supporters had always been thinking we're afraid we're in these. Yeah. And even um, like some parts, she basically was suggesting that folks like her felt like they had to be really critical of Wall Street after the crash because that's what people wanted. You know, things like that that make it seem like some of the things that she said before she said them because she felt she had to say them. And that does not um, help her in terms of being trustworthy. There are also some moments in some of these emails that suggest that she's saying some of these things to the Wall Street guys because she wants to hit them up for money. And she says <laughs> and that, that she needs money to run for yeah, office, you know? Yeah, I need money to run for office, and, and you guys have money. And uh, you, you don't know how this works, right? So uh, there's a lot of stuff in here that would have been particularly embarrassing for Hillary Clinton during the Sanders wars uh, back in the uh, the earlier months of this year because it made it so much more difficult, would have made it so much more difficult for her to espouse different positions that she had adjusted to in the light of Bernie Sanders' surprisingly strong challenge to her nomination. But 
what we're seeing here in these emails is a little bit of who Hillary Clinton really is. And people are going to have to look at that and say, can I accept that that's who Hillary Clinton really is? And then look over at some of the things we're learning about her opposition and say, can I accept that that's who Donald Trump really is? And lest we think that Hillary Clinton's going to have an easy debate in light of Donald Trump's <laughs> yeah. revelations, this stuff is going to come up at the debate, and this is not going to be comfortable for her. Totally. And Republicans I've talked to think that like this line of attack is so much more effective and smart than trying to dig further into the mud over can who's 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 has worse infidelities and treatment towards women. Like that's not a debate, a winning debate to engage in. But the speeches have always been a flashpoint for Clinton, both on the left and and motivating the sort of Bernie Sanders vote that has never really warmed to Clinton to begin with. Yeah. So keep pressing that button. And it also makes her vulnerable to people that are still trying to make up their mind about Hillary Clinton. Okay, well, enjoy the debate, guys. Uh, (laughs) We will be in your feed with an episode Monday morning to talk all about it. Until then, we'll be on your radio and on the NPR One app. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.